0: you done any research on Pete Alonso, Joe? I, I have a little bit. He's pretty good player. I did a bunch of the Mets games um, this year. Is he going to be hitting second for you next year <laughs> in New York? I think that's what Kenny was getting at. Yeah, well, I'm taking the fifth. I'm a broadcaster right now. AJ, <laughs> you <laughs> promised us yesterday you will be here for the duration of this series. I will be.
1: Mets are amazing, amazing,
0: amazing, amazing. Sing it fly ball, hit on to the left, waiting is Jones, the Mets of the World Champion. Here's the one-two pitch, check him out, Steve has 19 strikeouts. Swung on, hit on the ground towards. Andrew Jones on the run, this one has a chance, home run, Mike Piazza, and the Mets lead 3-2. To, to left field, Floyd, and after running one shot over the National League, the Mets have a title to show for it, 2006 National League East champions. Here's the payoff pitch from Familia to Fowler on the way, and it's in there, strike three called, the Mets win the pennant. The New York Mets have won the National League pennant. Put it in
1: the box. It's another edition of the Talkie Mets podcast here on this Sunday, October the 13th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out always at the Podcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show, preferably on Apple Podcasts. And we now are on Spotify. Welcome in, everybody, and wanted to poke in here today. I know that we are on a little mini hiatus as the Mets go through their managerial search, which appears to be heating up next week. So we're going to be getting back into the fold, I predict, at least pretty quickly, and probably have another podcast before the World Series. And I would expect the Mets announcing a new manager sometime before the World Series. That gap between the end of the Championship Series and the World Series, that's my prediction when, uh, when this will take place. But I wanted to pop in and give you my thoughts on where things are right now. Things are very tight-lipped. That's that's apparent. How this thing is being covered and and where it needs to go. Because to me, that's the third part is the, the most obvious. I don't want to get on the soapbox here. But before I get into all that, uh, I have to point out again, because it was a big theme on the podcast throughout 2019... If you still are in the camp, that if you're a team that has maybe a precipice, those low 80s to mid 80s type team in terms of roster construction, and you could put together, and you don't believe you can put together a competitive winning team and still be responsible in building a sustainable foundation for the future, after watching this postseason and seeing how series could swing in just one inning in the case of the Cardinals and Braves and why it's important to try to win and get into this tournament, then I don't know what to tell you because if your goal is to be the Dodgers, that's great. You can win a hundred games, win seven straight division titles, have all the accolades and everybody gush over you. And then all it takes is one bad inning and extra innings in game five to knock you out and put you essentially with every other team, including the teams that lost over a hundred games sitting home, uh, that's what this game has become it's a tournament it's not about if you were back maybe in the the old game the 80s when you had two divisions and even if you won 90 games in certain divisions that wasn't going to be enough because you had teams like the Braves uh, you know that were just running away with things when they were in the midst of their little divisional dynasty I'll call it because they only won one championship maybe I would understand some of this but if you look now, I mean not to compete and play in a two wild card scenario in a division series league with 5 games and how things could swing so quick, it's just foolish. And and that's why I laugh at guys like Ken Rosenthal and Buster Olney who criticize teams like the Mets because the Mets fall right into that. They're a team that's kind of like in the 80s, they need, they need to figure out ways to push it into the next tier. They've taken some bigger risks than maybe what you normally would want to uh, but i i bet because they're not one to lay their plans out here i think i mean we think we're learning that a little bit things are a little bit more tight-lipped around here and they were on the sandy alderson but i think towards the end they were getting a little bit more open because you didn't have sandy around as much when after he got ill uh i i think there, there probably is a plan in place to replenish a lot of the assets that they've let go to get to the time and place where they could get that 86 wins and then hopefully that low 90s wins and get into the tournament next year and, and see what happens. So if you don't think that tanking's a bad thing and if you think that it's still a good idea, then you're not watching the postseason. You're not seeing what's going on with the Nationals. You're not seeing how the margin of error. I don't care if you're an 86-win team, a 90-win team, a 103-win team. If you don't see the margin of error, how close it is, between those teams, once you get to the five and seven game series, then I, 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 you, this podcast's not for you because uh, you could go and listen to a rebuild podcast where you could tout theories and and espouse those theories and feel good about yourself about pretending that one day you're going to win because you're never going to. Let's put it that way. So uh, let's let's get off that soapbox because I, I'm done with that and I had to put that in there. I just I just had to because I think it's so obvious. Uh, that's number one. Number two. When you're reading the reports on the managerial search, you really have to read between the lines when you're—especially with certain columns in the New York Post, guys who cover the team. I'm not going to like go after these guys because they get mad at me when I, I name them my name. So you guys figure it out. You see the bylines. You know who these people are. It was reported, I believe it was either last night or this morning, that there's a couple of mystery candidates uh, for the Mets coming in for interviews— Clearly, it's tight-lipped. That, that, that's obvious. But right now, what we do know is that Derek Shelton, uh, a quality control coach from uh, the Twins, has been in the league a long time, used to be a, a Yankees farmhand back in the early 90s. Carlos Beltran, his name needs no, no, no introduction. Mike Bell, part of the uh, uh, the, uh, the whole tree over there, the Buddy Bell tree and what have you. He's coming in. uh, He's been a player development guy in the D-backs organization. And and now you've heard about maybe uh, Luis Rojas, the Mets quality control coach, brother of Moise Salou, possibly getting an interview. And, of course, Joe Girardi. That's the big name. And the only big name that we know so far. And that's really where I'm going to go in this podcast, as you can see by the title, The Case for Joe Girardi. What I want you to really look at is when you start to see Articles that say the Mets could, the next Mets manager could be Manny Acta, Brian Price, Bob Guerin. Stop the article. Stop reading. Throw it in the trash, because what that article is all about is one: if they're throwing those names out, they're there to agitate you. That's number one. Number two, the author of that article is trying to find any connection to a Mets uh, situation who may have been either a candidate in the past. Or regarded or has managed in the past. Because if you believe Maniac or Bob Guerin are serious candidates for the Mets' managerial job, then forget about it. You're, you're, you're totally in outer space. Why don't you just throw Bobby Valentine's name in there? Why don't you throw Davey Johnson's name in there? He could manage the Mets too. They're not going to, but they could manage the Mets. Uh, we could play this game all day. So once you see that, once you see those kind of names coming up then you need to just take a step back and say okay this is just throwing darts at the dartboard this is spitballing there's no news here because that's what happens with that is people don't see or read carefully some of the words in there because they're smart these guys they like to fill column space they like to poke you know poke the bear they want to see you guys get angry because that that's that's part of the other side of media there's the narratives and the platitudes." And then there's the poking the bear. And I promised that I wouldn't get too deep into this. But it's important because I'm seeing it already with this managerial search. You have to be a little bit smarter when you consume media these days, especially with publications like the Daily News and the Post. Because either you have writers that have been around a while that really, they're trying to use a blueprint of agitation because they feel they need to. Or you have younger up-and-coming writers. That's all they know because they grew up with that that nonsense in, in, in their social media feed. So you, you kind of have extremes here, and, and, and you have to kind of really take a step back and say, okay, you know, let, let's really see what I'm reading here. So let's get that out there. Now, before I get to the importance of this decision, let's also talk about where the Mets history has been in hiring managers. It hasn't been great since all the way back to Davey Johnson. This is an important time in Mets history. They can't mess around, and they can't mess this up. If you think back to when the Mets fired Davy Johnson in the spring of 1990, and I read Davy Johnson's book, and it appears that all along the Mets felt, and I was, I'm was i too young to really remember, and the reporting back then was different, so you may not have even made a difference. It, it felt like the Mets always wanted Buddy Arrelson to be the heir apparent. There was always rumors at that time, especially as Davey and Frank Cashin's Relationship grew worse. That maybe Dallas Green would come in maybe after '89. You had a team that was probably, well, not probably, was dysfunctional. Needed a jump start. There was a small window of opportunity that was closing, and they probably needed a Dallas Green to kick kick them through the last couple of years of that run. And they stuck with Davey, and then they brought Buddy in. And what's funny is because they brought Dallas Green in after the Jeff Torborg thing, so they brought Jeff Torborg in, who was a In that day and age, the new wave players' manager uh, replacing Buddy, who was supposedly a players' manager but was an indecisive, probably a a bench coach or or third base coach that was cast into a role that he wasn't really fit for. I've spoken to Buddy uh, many years ago about it, and he's still very, at that time, very defensive about the situation. I believe he, you know, at times he talked about how he took over a situation uh, with Strawberry and, and all the things that were going on that maybe was a no-win. But then they bring in, if the Torborgs thing blows up, because Torborgs a guy not built for this market, they bring in Dallas Green probably too late because Dallas Green was probably the guy that you should have brought in there at the end of the, the 80s. And now you bring in a Dallas Green with a young team, Generation K, a rebuilding situation. Well, that's probably where the Buddy Harrelson... Jeff Torborg situation would have worked better because the expectations would have been different. And maybe their uh, deficiencies, especially with handling pressure in the media, maybe that would have made more sense. So Dallas Green doesn't work out. Things get bad. Now you stumble into Bobby Valentine. And think about Bobby Valentine. Guy was managing in AAA. Guy had success in Texas. Went to Japan the first time. Came back to manage in AAA. I know he had a spotty resume because of his personality. And he's managing AAA. That's the equivalent of, you know, Dusty Baker going to AAA or uh, John Gibbons going to A for a team to manage. Clint Hurdle, things maybe more like Clint Hurdle or John Gibbons. That's how crazy it is. Go to AAA and the Mets hire him. That was the right hire. Another guy that obviously had a shelf life. And then after that, they meandered with the Art how. They went the opposite of Bobby. And that's usually what happens with these managerial searches. You have a guy, and I think you'll see this in Chicago with the Cubs, that's a certain personality. It grows tiresome after a long time. You don't have the same success that you had before. So you move on to the exact opposite personality, even though that individual might not be the perfect manager. Well, they're the polar opposite of what it had. So it's the yin and the yang situation. You saw that with Art Howe. Then they try to bring in Willie Randolph. Willie checked a lot of boxes, former Yankee, a local guy, uh, African-American manager. So that gets you a check uh, a check box. And I honestly think uh, Willie was undermined. I'm not going to get into the whole thing. Uh, I honestly think that uh, Willie was, was, was not totally given a fair shot. Not just how he was fired. He should have gotten the whole 2008 season. Uh, yes, they collapsed in '07. There was a lot more to that. We could do a whole podcast on why they collapsed in '07. It's not all Willie. You only could go with the troops that you have, the pitching that you have. So he gets fired. They bring in now. They go bring in, you know, the Yin and the Yang. Willie's this tight, you know, uptight, you know, not lack of personality guy. Not or great with the media. They bring in Jerry Manuel, who woos everybody with these post-game press conferences, but he's not really a good manager. And then things go sour and go bad because they had, you know, numerous things that went a certain way. And then they rebuild. Okay, you rebuild. And the first thing that Sandy Alderson does when he comes in on the rebuild, rather than hiring a manager that could grow with the team as they grew into a contender, he hires a retread, failed, multiple failed manager in Terry Collins. The worst possible candidate at a hurdle and Bob Melvin. Wally Backman was a serious candidate. That was the guy I wanted at the time that I he felt he could have grown. He could have been in a situation where you weren't expected to win. You were, ex- you were in baseball purgatory at least for two to three years. All right, you hire Collins. He's a really a gym teacher that's there to keep order. And instead of making the change when they're ready to win to a serious manager that can kick the team to the next level, which Terry Collins never was, and he, and he proved, especially in-game, that he was in over his head in the 2015 World Series. They keep him, and they keep him too long. And then they go and say, all oh, right, we need the opposite. We've had this old retread, backwards, you know, not analytically inclined, bad in-game manager Terry Collins, and we bring Mickey Calloway in, who has all these endorsements, no experience, all these endorsements, and now you see where we're at. So you see why I've gone through the history of Mets managerial hires, It's been bad for a while. There's been no plan. There's been no syncing up the period of where this team is at of those various times and the right person for that period. Every manager I listed, some are bad managers and probably were not suited because a guy like Torborg, Buddy never got another job. Torborg got another job and got fired. Uh, Willie never got another job. Manuel never got another job, but he was a manager elsewhere. Art Howe, you know, we could go into a million reasons why that was bad. Not a bad man, but probably, again, wrong guy for this market. The The Mets bring in this guy, Callaway, who uh, you you really probably needed him at a time when it, it would be good for 2010. This is exactly the kind of manager they needed when they were in 2010, when they were rebuilding and the expectations were low. So whatever learnings that a new manager needed to make, you're making at a time when the stakes are low. He gets thrown right in. 2017, uh, excuse me, 2018, 2019, a team that's built to win. New GM coming in, GM that's a, a high stakes poker guy, former agent, really trying to go and and put the chips to the center of the table, deep end of the pool, and this is where you're at now. And that's why I went through the history. It is critically important, and it's fine for Brody Van Wagenen and Jeff Wilpon to look at a Derek Shelton and a Carlos Beltran and a Mike Bell and a Luis Rojas or anybody else that you want to throw out there that's a former star player, a very good player, or somebody that is well regarded. But with a quarter of the league currently looking for managers and this idea that's been thrown around for the better part of the analytics revolution that started probably 10 years ago and really I think went mainstream after the Moneyball movie. movie, I think that that that's a little corny, maybe, but I'll tell you what, it's not off base. It's not all ba- off base at all. If you don't see where you're at right now and why hiring the most experienced, tough, well-respected manager is important right now, that taking a risk is the wrong thing. You took a risk on the GM and and that's okay. You can't take a risk on the field manager as well. You have to, you have to, to, to do one or the other. If they make the same mistake, you could be setting the franchise back five years or more, and we could be having this conversation again in a couple of years, and we'll have this conversation again in five years, and I'll be going through. You could probably take this podcast and put it on repeat, and with the Yankees with a young core. Uh, possibly on the way to another championship in the city with the media swarm. You've already seen it. You've already seen it with how they're covering Carlos Beltran. Do you realize any article about Carlos Beltran and his managerial candidacy for the Mets has never touted who he is as a manager, other than he's well-respected from his Houston days and his late Houston days and his time with the Yankees. End of the year, Carlos Beltran is focused on a feud that he had about his knee surgery in 2010 with, an, with the Manaya regime still in place uh, a lifetime ago for both the Wilpons and Carlos. And if you think that a player, no matter how angry he is about the end of their tenure with the team, he was, was paid a handsome contract with the Mets. The Mets expected to get the most out of what that contract is. They did, if you want to break it down, the back end was dicey but they did, if you think he's not going to take seriously or or that's going to be the big concern when he's interviewing for one of 30 jobs in the world that are hard to come by, you're fooling yourself. Sure, is the ownership meddlesome or the narrative that's out there going to be a topic in the interview? Sure it is. He's an adult. You talk about that. Hey, what kind of autonomy I have. He's reporting to Brody Van Wagenen. And it's no different with the Mets as it is elsewhere, as you can see. These front offices want to have their hands on everything. But this idea that anybody can manage, well, if that was the case, then you wouldn't have almost a quarter of the league looking for new managers. Because clearly, that's not the case. You shouldn't have all these openings now. Because the foolishness now, the children have been making decisions. Those who run numbers and haven't managed anything in their entire life are telling people that managers don't matter. That's what's happening. And that's... that's, you know, and I don't care if you're in baseball or not. You're listening to this, any kind of position when you're managing people. You know, there's good people and there's not good people for positions. Not everybody's cut out for every position, especially when it's one to one dealing with individuals in high pressure, stake situations. So, if you believe that you know this doesn't matter, then turn the podcast off and move on. It does, and I'll tell you why. That means there's only one individual right now that really meets the criteria of where the Mets are at and how critical it is to bring it home and get that individual in the fold. You're listening to the Talking Mets Podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. And enjoy the rest of the show. Alright, we're back. Talking Mets Podcast here. Just me today. Shorter podcast. You know, depends. Every time I say it's short, I look up and it's probably 40% of what it normally is or 50%. But... Uh, like I said, there's only really one choice here for the Mets, and I had said in the last podcast that as long as it's an experienced manager and they vet out and they interview the Dusty Bakers and the Buck Walters and uh, Joe Girardi, and I put like the Clint Hurdles and the John Gibbons at the next tier down, experienced managers, but without that New York credo, certainly without the resume of the three guys that I mentioned earlier, I'll be fine with that. You want to interview these other guys and get glean some information, maybe bring him in as a coach, that's fine. But now that it's really narrowed down here, and it looks like Girardi's going to get the interview, and I believe the way they've set this up is, if I had to take a guess, Girardi's going to be the last guy. They're going to go through all their interviews, they're going to see who the best of those guys is, and Girardi's their guy. And either they're going to give him the job or they're not, they may have some concerns they got to vet out, but... They're not bringing Joe Girardi in to see if he's the manager. They're going to try to see if he's not. That's that's how I look at it. And I, I'm totally speculating, so at least I'm honest when I speculate. I'm trying to piece through how I look at things. I'm not trying to make it seem like it's news like some other people. But that's how I feel that it's going to go. The the, the 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 thing that I guess could come into play is the Chicago Roots, and is he going to, you know, is that pull to Illinois? Do the Cubs want him? There's some doubt about that, how the Cubs really want to go from Joe Madden, an experienced manager who they, they really couldn't control, to a guy that is going to want autonomy and, and less intrusion, intrusion from the front office. Get to that in a minute. So there's some doubt about that. I don't hear of Girardi interviewing anywhere else. I know the Phillies' name has come up. Phillies are late to the game on this, and I'm not sure the Phillies are an old, really all that great of a job you're going to come to the Northeast, why would you go to Philadelphia over New York? Uh, another front office that's probably going to want to you know, intrude on there. An inexperienced owner in John Middleton who's going to be probably as involved and hands-on as what you would cr- criticize the Wilpons for. So I believe it's Girardi's to lose. The Mets are bringing him in to see if he's not the manager because he already is if he wants the job, in my opinion. And then whatever happens there happens. Now, there's that small chance that the Mets go out out of the box. And this is where I go back to my initial comments. You did that with the GM kudos because all the other names were standard industry you either went with a young, you know, up and coming analytically based trash and rebuild guy in Hein Bloom or you went with the old guard uh Doug Melvin who's probably just Sandy Alderson just you know, a healthier, obviously, maybe a little bit more modern version of Sandy Alderson. That's what uh, Melvin was, and the Mets went completely sideways with the agent. And after really going wow, because I didn't take Brody Van Wagenen seriously when he was a candidate. I'm like, all right, they're, they're interviewing an agent. That's that's interesting. And then he gets the job. It's like wow. And then you see kind of maybe why they were doing that, and and it was aligned with where they were. In their life cycle, they needed a, a jolt. The organization had gone stale. It almost, and re- I hate to say it, under Sandy Alderson, it was almost like a law firm at times, stuffy and boring, and you know, very rote and very predictable at times. And I think Brody Van Wagen is trying trying to swing that. And I know that people don't always like that, but the funny part about Girardi, he's so perfect for this because, and I was a Girardi critic myself. When he was when I was doing the old NYBD podcast and the website and everything, because it was true, he was very uptight. He was very tense. He didn't get along with the media. Uh, he suffered at times from some of the same things, especially early on, 08 before he won the championship in 09, where he didn't handle post game press conference well. The media felt he was dishonest with them. I think a lot of times he was trying to keep information in house not really throw the players under the bus, and he would flat out have bad answers and come across and and probably was lying, and the media doesn't like that. I didn't have the same perspective on the press then that I do now, because I think after 10 years or so, you have some... Uh, battle scars and you, you're more adult and you're more mature and you have more life experience so you understand things a little better so I see as I read articles about Girardi I went back and I was reading old articles by Joel Sherman and I think it was Howard Bryant I think that was an ESPN New York article Bob Clappish. Bob has been on the show big big critic of Girardi and guess what when he was fired Bob said this is a mistake the Yanks are going to regret that and we'll see we'll see how this Houston series plays out with Boone at the helm. We'll see if they advance how the World Series plays out because uh, right now Aaron Boone can only do positive. But if they don't win with this team, that'll turn. That's another story for another day. But the same things we're criticizing Mickey Calloway for. If you read old articles about Girardi, same things. His interaction with the media, how he handled it. Uh, you know, Jason Zilla, the director of public relations, getting in and getting involved with Girardi. I remember when I covered for Gotham Baseball Magazine Spring Training 2008, and I was in a Girardi press conference. This is his first spring training. Brian Cashman sat there in the manager's office with him, almost like a, a guardian. As he did it, it was it stood out to me. He wasn't answering the question. He was there to see how it went. And you're basically in his office. There's a scrum. Everybody's all around him. And it's, it's suffocating. It's stifling. You can see where a manager gets agitated, especially a guy who's taking on a big job, he got fired from Miami, he's a new manager, he had no resume at the time, and, um, you know, he's got his boss just standing over him, and Cashman is not an imposing guy, but uh, there's a certain intimidation to Cashman if you've been around him that you would understand if you were there with his rote, monotone ways that you would understand it if you were there, that's the best way I could put it, at least in my opinion. Joe Girardi was replacing an immensely popular manager in Joe Torre, so think about where he's coming in with the Mets, and think about what he came in with the Yankees before you. You realize oh, it was the Yankees. He, you know, he was. He's, he came into a job on third base, not totally. You know, yes, he did at times, but not totally. Joe Torre's firing, although popular probably with segments of the fan base, especially younger fans and more advanced members of the media, especially at the beginning of the analytics revolution, was not that popular with the old guard writers who loved him, with those who saw the Yankees' renaissance under him, those that to this day yearn for the feeling of the 90s. The 1990s and that dynasty for the Yankees is for a generation of Yankees fans and members of the media the golden age of baseball. It really is. Because that was there. They were young writers. They were young fans. That was their version of the 50s Yankees. Their Jeter is their mantle. And you're never going to get them over that. Just like back, your you know, your father or your grandfather, whoever, you know, was around back then, always talked about those old, you know, those 1950 Yankees, Barron, Mantle, and, and Larson. That's how some people talk about the 90s Yankees, and they'll never get over it. So he's coming in, he's replacing a popular manager. He's the diametrically opposite personality of Joe Torre. The core four, look, great players, but Mercurial, Jeter's a mercurial guy. You don't get him on your side. He's got a rod. Then he's got the a rod steroid thing, and all that went with a rod at that time. Uh, he's an uptight guy. He's an intense guy. He's coming into a veteran ball club and a ball club that hadn't won in almost ten years. And a, and a, and a you know, Steinbrenner is older, and he's he, was, he would pass on and, and a couple of years later. But you still had that omnipresent Steinbrenner mindset even though it was Hank and Hal at that time taking over. I think it was Hal that was really taking over, and Hal was trying to pretend to be his father, and, and that went poorly, as we all know. So here's this guy coming into this situation. He's got this mercurial core for Jeter, who thinks he's Joe DiMaggio and wants to you know call all the shots. Um, you got A-Rod and all his nonsense. The steroid stuff comes out. You know, you're replacing a popular manager, and he's got all this on him, and within a year, he wins a championship. Now, yeah, they went out, and they got CeCe Sabathia and A.J. Burnett and Mark Teixeira, and they still had the core four, not in their early prime. They were in their late prime, but they still were very effective. But that just added to the pressure. You had to win, and you know, he lived with that as it got to the back half of this whole thing. That's not a fun time in Yankee history because they were tied into these big contracts. They were tied into the core four. Aaron Boone comes into a team that's young and fresh and new and expectations are high now. But there's a certain level of patience that he's had to kind of find his way. Girardi never had that with the Yankees. And then the subsequent years after 09, they had to win because they knew their window was closing and they could never do they were basically the Boston Celtics of the 80s because they had to hold on to Parish, Bird, McHale, because it was too unpopular to get rid of them. So they had to hold on to uh, Jeter and Posada and, 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 and Pettit. And, I mean, of course you're going to hold on to Rivera, but if Rivera ever declined, it would have been an interesting situation there. Jeter's the one that I think Cashman dared to leave because they had their contract dispute because he knew that he wasn't the same player and he was a detriment at shortstop and he wasn't the same hitter that he was. They knew, uh, and, and maybe that his presence was a negative at times. I'm telling you, he had a lot on his plate, and he was successful. And then he had the purgatory years, which for the Yankees weren't all that bad because they were in the wild card chase, the 14, the 15, the 16, when they there was that one-off season, they didn't even sign a big league free agent, a, a major league free agent. Never heard a peep from the media about that. They tried to reboot it quick with Brian McCann and Jacoby Ellsbury, and it didn't work, but He withstood. He was there for almost a decade. And that is a tough gig. And if you could survive that and thrive and keep your cool and deal with the media, he's coming into the same cauldron here not as bad. You're coming into a team with a GM that wants to win, that has a lot to prove, that's an ambitious guy that wound up getting this job, leaving a very lucrative financial situation with CAA. And I'm sure he could always go back into agenting. So it's not like you're going to, you know, he's not going to all of a sudden be on the bread line. But there's ego, there's status, there's things that are important to people that are achievers. And you don't get to the top of the agency like CAA without being an achiever. It's just like you don't get to be the top of any any industry, president, CEO, without having a gear that's relentless. So he's coming into that. He's coming into a team that hasn't won since 1986, has had some penance, and recently had a pennant in 2015, but a fan base that is uh, extremely hungry, but fickle. Uh, a team across town that may now grasp another generation of fans with a championship, with a young core, and might not be slowing down. And uh, a media frenzy that is intent... On focusing on the negative and focusing on making the Mets a laughing stock. They're hell-bent on it. And the Mets have to fight that and they have to prove them wrong. And I think they started to do that in the second half, but the job's not finished. 86 wins and almost is not finished. And I think coming off of Mickey Callaway, the experience, the in-game experience, the managing the ball game, the preparedness. The ability to handle the media, because I think now, unlike when he came in in two thousand eight, they're gonna listen. They're gonna mess with him. That's just gonna happen because they're gonna try to see if they could get him to say something or do something. But they're gonna be much more careful with Joe Girardi, and he's got a resume now. I mean, he's ten years in. He's not coming in as a failed Miami manager who is a, a good little player, uh, but you know, he's not replacing Joe Torre. He's replacing a manager that they didn't like. Is the exact opposite. He's the perfect manager at this time for the Mets. If it was any other time, I would say, you know what? Maybe he's too intense. You know, maybe, maybe he's a retread. Maybe the Mets need to make their own mark. But the Mets need to bring some of that Yankee excellence. They need to battle that for the back pages. They need to battle it uh, for the media respect. But most importantly, they need it to get to where they want to get. And I know that Mets fans, like I said in the last podcast, don't want to hear that. But they do. And I laugh when I read, and it was very well put out over at SNY by Andy Martino, when he talked about the pros and cons, a balanced look at Joe Girardi's Mets uh, candidacy, where baseball executives, I don't think they were with the Yankees, who go, well, why was he fired? Why Because Brian Cashman spoke very highly of Joe Girardi. Well, why was he fired then? Well, everybody gets fired. That's a myopic, immature way of looking at it. Everybody's going to get fired. Every manager is going to get fired. Billy Martin got fired. Uh, David Johnson got fired. I know everyone gets fired for different reasons. Everybody's going to get fired. doesn't mean you want to. doesn't mean they're a bad manager. It doesn't inv- uh, invalidate anything they achieved before that. means right place, right time. And the Yankees were going through a situation where they needed a new voice. People get around each other for a long time. They get stale. And it might have been a situation where it was either Girardi or Cashman, and Cashman's the boss. You think he's going to step away? And he's the guy that was able to get the Steinbriners to butt out from having a dysfunctional front office and become different types of owners that was necessary. And he did, and give him credit for that. So that doesn't invalidate what Joe Girardi did. And then I love... The smartest guy in the room quote where, well, he listens to him on the broadcast. You know, when he's wrong, he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room and he won't admit it. Well, he's got a strong belief system. That's why he got to where he was as a player. That's where he got to where he was as a manager. And he's going to do it his way or the highway. Now, that could become a negative. But I think that decisiveness earns a lot of respect. And I'm betting you these quotes from these anonymous individuals are members of the front office, probably in the analytics group, that with their vision and their goal when it comes to running an organization is borderline stratomatic, where you sit in front of the computer, you have all the people down on the field, and you push the buttons. And that's the kind of manager you want, because now the power and the control and the choice and the glory in their mind is on them. Well, guess what? The fans come to see the players, the fans face of the franchise every night is the manager and the players need someone that they can look to that they know is making the decision. You heard some grumblings that they felt that Callaway was just working at the behest of the front office. Uh, You're going to get a lot of that no matter who the manager is if they're not someone experienced like Girardi. And the best part about Girardi is he's recent to New York. Buck Showalter is not recent to New York although he would bring a lot of the same traits. A little bit older and I think maybe on the back half of being put out, for lack of a better word, to pasture. And Dusty Baker, to me, is a personality communicator guy. I didn't realize he's 70 years old. He would be a very short-term guy, and I don't think necessarily a fit. Because you want someone that's going to be here four or five years, and that would be Girardi. I mean, Girardi's not going to take this job for anything less than a four- or five-year deal. Just not. So, it just, to me, is so obvious why this decision is right there. There is no second choice. And I guess if Girardi gets the job in Chicago or turns down the Mets or the Mets turn him down, that'll be a different podcast. But it comes with a warning because right now you have two things at play that could happen. If you're going to bring in someone not named Mickey Calloway, that's just another version of Mickey Calloway, I don't get it. Because remember something, I think Mickey Calloway has some good qualities. And don't be surprised that he winds up doing well as a pitching coach somewhere. And don't be surprised if he learned from this truly And from what I know, and for those who know Callaway, who I've spoken to, he's been very, uh, very honest about why he's no longer the manager. He's not looking at this with sour grapes. He's being uh, very honest with himself, very mature. And guys like that tend to learn from things and become better down the road. Terry Francona failed, A.J. Hinch failed, they came back, and now they're very well-respected managers. Don't be surprised that's Mickey Calloway down the road. And then you'll see the stories. Well, the Mets pulled the plug too quick. No. That, that'll that be the ultimate second guess. So if you let this guy go, you got to make it worth it. And I'm sorry. Love Carlos Beltran as a player. Not sure what he's going to be. Luis Rojas, sure he's well-respected. Worked his way up the ranks very young. He's also probably been friendlier with these players as a quality control coach. Different ballgame when you're the boss. I don't know anything about Derek Shelton. I don't know anything about Mike Bell. But to me, they're basically another version of Mickey Calloway. You're going by other people's recommendation. And they may wow you in an interview, but the interview ain't real life. And the interview is a test tube. It's a controlled environment. And that doesn't mean it's going to work out. They cannot afford to be wrong. Because you're going to waste the rest of what you have with this core. You're going to set a bad foot forward with the young players like Alonzo. And yes, I see what people are saying. The fun-loving Pete Alonzo clubhouse that Joe Girardi could ruin. Guess what? Pete Alonzo's going to learn. The summer of Pete, the fun-loving. Love it. Love his attitude. I hope it stays forever. It's going to get harder next year because they're going to try to tear you down next year. The first slump, especially if it happens day one. Is Pete Alonzo for real? All that smile, well, does he take it seriously? Is he doing too much uh, Colbert? Oh, he went to the late night show, and, and all of a sudden now, you know, he's two for his first 25 to start 2020. Is is, is Pete Alonso getting a big head? Watch. I'm telling you here in October what's going to happen. You're going to hear it. You might even hear it in March in spring training, after an 0-4 in a spring training game. Or maybe he starts off spring training uh, not the same way. Keep that in mind. He could use some of the perspective that a veteran, experienced guy like Girardi brings for just that simple situation. Joe Girardi. That's my case for Joe Girardi. To me, there's nobody else. To me, that he's the guy who has the job. All he could do is lose it. And all the Mets could do is blow this if they allow him to leave without being named the next manager of the New York Mets. Perfect time. Perfect manager. Perfect situation. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to this edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. Of course, you can check out the show all the time at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'd prefer you to go to one of our providers, the best out there, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, to listen to the show. And you can contact me, Mike Silva, at talkinmetspodcast.com or on Twitter at Mike Silva Media. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon. We'll continue to take a look at the managerial search. More to come in the next few days, maybe even within the week. Thanks, everybody. Be well.